Throughout generation to generation, we are gonna be spending our time looking through the book of Nehemiah. This morning, we'll look at Nehemiah chapter two, selected verses. And the message of Nehemiah chapter two is the story of a man compelled to answer the call. Last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter one and he receives the call. He receives the call of God, but it's in chapter two, we see a man who is under compulsion to go to Jerusalem. You remember the story briefly that we introduced to you last week, or for those that are familiar with the story of Nehemiah, it was in 586 BC that the Babylonians overran Jerusalem, destroying its walls and destroying the temple. The uh, the Jews were brought into captivity. They were depopulated by sending them and scattering, scattering them all throughout the known world at the time throughout the great captivity. And over a hundred years later, Nehemiah's brother is passing through Persia where Nehemiah's family had been brought. And Nehemiah asks his brothers, how is Jerusalem doing, the earthly city of God? And Nehemiah's brother delivers the report, the sobering report that the city that had been destroyed over a hundred years before still lie in ruin. The walls are still knocked down. The temple has not been rebuilt. And we're told in chapter one that for four months, Nehemiah prays, weeps, mourns, and fasts. And it's here in chapter two that we finally see, after four months of weeping and mourning, that he is in a position to answer the call of God. He is the cupbearer to the king, King Art Xerxes, the king of the Persian empire, And here, a Jewish man is second in line, second to the greatest superpower in the world, divinely and providentially positioned to answer the call of God. Nehemiah chapter two. Verse one, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing it that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my heart, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, Let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates and of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Skip ahead to verse 15. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I 
turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest who were doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work and the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. There comes a time where you just need to act. No more talking about it, no more planning, no more strategizing, no more delaying. It just comes the time to act. That's what Nehemiah was facing here after four months of contemplating the sobering news that Jerusalem still lie in ruin. He decided after four months, I can no longer sit here and sit back and do nothing. The story of Nehemiah in chapter 2 is a man who was compelled to act. The story of a man who had no choice but to go. No more talking about it. It's time to act. In the 21st century, the walls of our culture are broken. And the churches in North America fare no better. And it is time for the people of God to rise up to go, to act. What would compel you and me as it compelled Nehemiah in his day to answer the call? Well, the first thing that Nehemiah was given to compel him was a God-sized vision. It was nothing small that Nehemiah was contemplating. It was God-sized, the vision that compelled him to drop everything and return to Jerusalem. Do you understand why Nehemiah needed to go? He understood that God's reputation in the world was at stake. The earthly city of God lie in ruins for over a century. The kingdom of God was at stake. This is what Nehemiah was contemplating. The reputation of God's people and God's city was the laughingstock of the known world. And so Nehemiah was given a vision that was God-sized. It was kingdom-focused. That was the vision that Nehemiah was given. The reputation of God and his kingdom is at stake. Therefore, this vision is so big and so grand and so glorious, I have no choice but to go to Jerusalem. I want to ask you, don't you want a vision like that? A vision so big and so audacious that 20, 30 years from now, they would look back and say it was such a big vision at Coral Ridge that only the Lord could have accomplished it. That's what we're talking about. A vision so big and so glorious. Remember what Nehemiah was contemplating doing. Now, you need to understand a little bit about the history of what has happened so far. They have tried to rebuild Jerusalem And the king put it down and actually destroyed the city again. Word got back to the king that not only are they trying to rebuild Jerusalem, 
but they're planning insurrection. I think it mentions it in Ezra. And so Nehemiah, think about this, is being asked to go back to the king to convince a pagan Persian king to reverse his mandate, to reverse his decision. How many kings and emperors reversed their decision in that day? And to not only reverse his decision, but to free him from exile to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And once he was released from King Artaxerxes, he would go back with no money, no resources, no workforce. A God-sized vision. So impossible and so audacious that only the Lord could have accomplished it. What's our God-sized vision in the 21st century? We are attempting in the 21st century in South Florida to reinvest in the kingdom work here at Coral Ridge so that the next generation might grow up with a church that stands faithful to the word of God. To reinvest in the 21st century to equip young men and women with a biblical worldview so that they can be sent from this place and go on their college campuses and not lose their faith, but be strengthened in their faith. And instead of the culture shaping them, they are shaping the culture. We are attempting to reinvest in the kingdom work here at Coral Ridge to have a church that continues to boldly proclaim that you can only be saved through the work of Jesus Christ alone. The world looks at this and says it's ridiculous, but it's a God-sized vision that we would preserve the work here at Coral Ridge for generations to come. 60 years ago, it was daunting to plant this church, and it's daunting yet again to reinvest in the kingdom work here at Coral Ridge for generations to come. We need a God-sized vision Second thing that we see here that compels Nehemiah to go is a big risk. You see, a problem with a God-sized vision is that it always requires you to risk something. And for Nehemiah, it asked him to risk everything. It says in verse 2 that he was afraid. Of course he was. He was going to walk into the palace of the king and ask for the moon and back, and he was going to give him the blessing. Of course he was afraid. He was risking his life. He was risking his livelihood. He was risking his comfort. North Americans love movies like Braveheart and Gladiator and Saving Private Ryan because they're stories of men and women risking everything. But we love to watch those movies in our living room because it doesn't require us to make any risk. The North American church in the 21st century is risk averse because how dare a church or a pastor ask us to risk everything? Guess what? When Jesus came to earth, he said, you want to follow me? You must die and take up your cross. You see, the calling of Christianity, most people think, particularly in a capital campaign, here we go again, all the church wants is my money. You wish it was that easy. God wants everything. He not only wants your money, he wants your children and your marriage and your lives and your career and your future. He wants it all. I wish it was just our money. The money's the easy part. God calls us to risk our lives for the sake of the kingdom and this kingdom work. I'm asking you this morning, what would it take 
for you to wake up to understand the glorious privilege of risking it all for a God-sized vision. Nehemiah receives this. A God-sized vision, a big risk, and third and lastly, Nehemiah has an unshakable confidence. We're told early on in the passage in verse 2 that he was very afraid, understandably so. But then it seems like something changes. Did you notice starting in verse 5? Nehemiah asks for everything. The audacity. He says, King, now that I have enough courage... Can you send me letters for safe passage? Can you send me letters for resources? Can you send me resources so that we can rebuild the wall, rebuild the temple? And oh, by the way, can you throw in enough resources so I can have a house to live in? Who's this guy think he is? He just went from shaking in his boots to asking the greatest king known to the people and known to the known world at that time. He asked for everything in the kitchen sink. Where did he get off? having this type of confidence. There's two keys in the chapter. In verses 8 and 18, it says, the good hand of the Lord was upon me. The good hand of the Lord being upon him was his favor and his blessing. But here's the problem. The Bible says that we're not good. So how in the world can the good hand of a good God be on upon somebody like Nehemiah who wasn't good? It's the story of the gospel. Nehemiah understood and he revealed it twice in verse 18 and 8 and 18 that the only reason that the favor of the Lord is upon me is he understood that it was the unmerited grace and favor of God upon him. It was the gospel. The good news that told Nehemiah and tells us today that the only way for the good hand of a holy God to be upon us is because of the good work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The only way for a good God to have his hand upon us this morning is trusting and believing in the good work and the good righteousness of Jesus Christ on our behalf. You see, Nehemiah understood this. If I go to Jerusalem and I am successful, it is not because of my goodness. It is not because of my wisdom. It is not because of my strength. It is because of the unmerited, unearned favor of God upon me. And if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, Believe that you can have an unshakable confidence this morning, not in your ability or in your power or strength, but in Christ you have it, the favor of God the Father that gives you an unshakable confidence to take a big risk to accomplish a God-sized vision. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus that allows us to have the favor of God the good hand of him upon us. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then in a few minutes when we pray, we're gonna give you an opportunity, whether you're here or you're sitting at home, to talk to God and to say, yes, I want the good hand of God to be upon me through the work and sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. An unshakable confidence to do the impossible. A few weeks ago, After the sermon, several of you came up to me 
and said, Pastor, that I loved the service. I loved the energy. You, you preached with such conviction and, and confidence. You were just free. What they didn't know is earlier that morning, I had a letter sitting on my desk from my wife that said, I love you, and I am so proud that you're my husband. When you have the confidence of the one who means the most to you, it is the most freeing thing in the world. Gives you a confidence unlike anything else can. But if you know Jesus this morning, you have that confidence. You have the confidence from the only one who ultimately matters, his favor and blessing upon you because of Jesus Christ that allows you to accept this God-sized vision, to take this big risk, and to say, I am unshakable because it's not about me, but it's about the God who's working through me in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, the good hand of our God is upon us. So let's go. Let's move forward. Let's march on. Nehemiah chapter 2 is generation to generation in a nutshell. It's the people of God saying, let us arise and do the work that God has called us to. But I have an idea. Why don't we do it together and together invest in the kingdom work for generations to come? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, you call us in our lives to take big risks, but we need a vision that's so much bigger than us, so much bigger than this building. We need a vision of the advancement of the kingdom of God for generations to come. But let us not be fooled that we have the power or even the confidence to do this apart from your power and your might. The only way we get that is through Jesus Christ. If there is anyone here this morning or anyone watching at home that does not have a relationship with Jesus, never even thought it was possible to have the good favor of God upon them, I pray that they would realize for the first time that the good hand of God is not upon them because of their good works. The good hand of God is not upon them because of their righteousness. The good hand of God is not upon them because of their power, strength, or competence. The only way to get the good hand of God is by believing in Jesus Christ alone, both now and forever. May they confess their sins, confess their going through life as if they don't need you, but may you awaken them for the first time this morning to have a relationship with you, that they can have life to the full both now and forever and stand boldly before the, before the throne of God with an unshakable confidence and in this world with an unshakable confidence on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. May sinners come home, may sons and daughters receive hope today from their heavenly father. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.